For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we've been studying Acts, this awesome book that picks up right at the end of the life of Jesus Christ and takes us on a journey through the first 30 years of the Christian church, the lives and ministry of the followers of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, left us with the famous final words of Jesus Christ, where Jesus said to his disciples, look, you guys are going to be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, once you get that power of the Holy Spirit. He says, first of all, in Jerusalem, and that's the city right here, circled on the screen. That's where they started from. He says, also, throughout Judea, that's the, the province, the area just south and west of Jerusalem, a little closer to home, a little closer to Jerusalem. He says, you guys are going to go even further away, up to Samaria, up here. And then finally, he says, but it's not going to stop there. He says, you guys are going to the ends of the earth. That's where the message of my forgiveness is going. And what an exciting mission that is. What a vision from Jesus that now that he has died on the cross for sins, he's paid the the debt that we all owed God. the the judgment we should have suffered for ourselves. And now he says, if you receive my life and death for your sins, then you can be forgiven and you'll have the Holy Spirit live inside of you. And you're going to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. He says, that's the message you get to take out to everybody. And Acts 2 through 7, they tell of the exciting witnesses of the apostles filling out Jesus's commission that he gave them here. But unfortunately, Acts 2 through 7 They haven't even left Jerusalem yet. In fact, they've barely left the temple. Most of it's taking place in one place in Jerusalem. But something very significant happens in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says that a persecution breaks out, led by a guy named Saul, who we studied about last week. And the believers were forced to scatter. And wouldn't you know it, Luke says in Acts 8, 1, they scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, using that same language from Jesus' original commissioning to them. And Luke goes on to tell us of four very significant conversions in Acts chapters 8 and 9 and 10, the first of which is up in Samaria. A guy named Philip goes up to Samaria, leads practically the whole town to Christ. And we, we studied that, that passage and we saw the significant racial tensions between Jews and Samaritans and what a difficult barrier that would have been to cross. And yet, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that rift, the healing began. We also saw he sent Philip down toward Gaza to lead this high-ranking Ethiopian official to Christ on his way back to Ethiopia. We saw last week that he sent the church's worst enemy, Saul, up to Damascus, where he leads him to Christ through the believers there. And then this week, we're going to see a fourth and very significant final conversion story where we're going to see the gospel break out into the Gentiles, finally the Greeks. It's not just the Jews, but the Greeks are finally going to come to know Christ. And he's going to do it not through Saul, who you'd expect. You know, when he rescued Saul, he said, he's going to be my chosen instrument to take the gospel out to the Gentiles, the Greeks, the non-Jews. But now tonight, this initial breakthrough to the Gentiles, he's going to do through the apostle Peter. And so Acts chapter 9, 
Picking up where we left off last week in verse 33, it says, meanwhile, Peter traveled from place to place and he came down to visit the believers in the town of Lydda. Lydda. So this is a town about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem, would be right about there. And now that Saul's a Christian, looks like the persecution led up significantly on the Christian church, and so they had some more freedom of movement. Looks like Peter used to get out from time to time and travel around and visit the Christians in the town surrounding Jerusalem and maybe do some teaching, maybe do some other, you know, some healing, whatever they needed there, some encouragement of the believers. So he heads up to Lydda on this road, major road heading out of Jerusalem, and it says he met a man named Aeneas who'd been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. This guy has, has got this, basically this chronic illness where he can't, he can't move. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your sleeping mat. And sure enough, he was healed instantly. Boom, eight years of debilitating sickness. A single word from Peter releases the power of Jesus into his life. He's healing people just like Jesus did. Remember the guy Jesus told to pick up your mat and walk? Well, the whole population of Lydda and Sharon saw Aeneas walking around, and they turned to the Lord. So a significant revival breaks out here because of this miracle that Peter does. And so it looks like he decides to hang around for a little while to do some ministry there. But while he's there, something happens. There was a believer in Joppa named Tabitha. So again, we're moving another 10 miles further northwest. It's almost like God is kind of slowly leading Peter away from headquarters. He knows that there's something he wants to do, and he needs to be far away from the rest of the crew in Jerusalem for this to happen. And so there's this believer in Joppa named Tabitha. Now, Tabitha was this godly old woman, kind of like a modern-day Mother Teresa. You know, she would, she's well-known for her deeds of kindness, her deeds of charity. Her name Tabitha means gazelle in Aramaic, which is just beautiful. <laughs> Unfortunately, Luke tells us the Greek translation of her name which in Greek is Dorcas, <laughs> which makes it a little hard to take her seriously for the rest of the story. So Dorcas was always doing kind things for others, always helping the poor. Boy, if Dorcas were here, she'd know what to do. Unfortunately, Dorcas is dead. About this time, she became ill and she died. So they've got a dead Dorcas on their hands. <laughs> And they're like, they, her body's washed for burial and laid in an upstairs room. And they're like, wait a minute. The believers there heard that Peter was nearby at Lydda. And so they sent two men to beg him, please come as soon as possible. So Peter returned with them. And as soon as he arrived, they took him to the upstairs room where her body was. And it says the room was filled with widows weeping and showing him the coats and other clothes that Dorcas had made for them. We miss Dorcas so much. Look at this, look at this shirt she made. But Peter asked them all to leave the room. And then he knelt and he prayed, just like he saw Jesus do there in Luke chapter 7, I think it was, when he heals the little girl. Turning to the body, he said, Get up, Tabitha. And she opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. 
He gave her his hand and helped her up, and then he called in the widows and all the believers and presented her to them alive. So we got the first instance of a, an apostle raising someone from the dead, just like Jesus did multiple times. Well, the news spread throughout the whole town, and many there in Joppa believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed a long time in Joppa, living with a tanner named Simon. What does it mean that he was a tanner named Simon? No, not this sort of tanner here. <clears throat> That's not what he's talking about. Neither tanning bed nor spray tan were involved here. They didn't even invent those yet. No, he's a tanner of hides, like it says in some of our Bibles. And so it would look more something like this. It's actually a modern tanning facility over in Morocco. And you see this guy, he's just got these animal skins. What they would do is they would take the animal skins, they would dry them, they would dry them out, they would dye them sometimes if they wanted it. Um, they would prepare them to be used for other purposes. And so this guy, Simon, the tanner of hides, agrees to let Simon Peter stay there for a time. And now it's interesting because this guy was a tanner. That was not a, uh, a neutral, a religiously neutral profession. Ben Witherington says tanners, because of their contact with the hides of dead animals, were considered unclean by more scrupulous Jews. Yeah, they had dietary laws in Judaism, and there was a whole long list of animals you weren't supposed to eat. And scripture, scripture doesn't tell us. God doesn't say why this animal's on the list and this animal's not on the list, the eat or don't eat list. But it's got these long lists of animals in chapters like Leviticus chapter 11. And not only were they not supposed to eat these unclean animals, but also they weren't supposed to touch the dead bodies of those animals. Otherwise, you could be rendered unclean. Now, being rendered unclean, it, it didn't mean you were like cast out forever or something like that. It, it just meant that, you know, maybe you have to wait till the next day in order to go offer a sacrifice or something like that. You, you couldn't participate in normal life until a waiting period. And so part of what God was doing there is he was showing them, well, part of it was probably for health reasons, these dietary laws. But part of it is God's trying to make a difference between his people, the Jews, and the non-Jews. You know, he, he wanted them to be known as different. And uh, he also, so in, in some cases, he's trying to prevent them from participating in the pagan religious practices that the other nations did around them. And so he's trying to preserve the Jewish nation. You know, they got to deliver the scriptures. They got to deliver the Messiah. And so he set up these dietary laws. And they, it involved laws of clean and unclean. And so these tanners, they could be rendered unclean because they're constant contact with these dead animals. The Mishnah and Talmud suggest they were despised because of their ongoing uncleanness caused by their trade and not to mention the bad smell associated with the tanning process. That's why Simon the Tanner lived out by the sea, because it smelled bad. I guess there's a Dirty Jobs episode where he goes and he, he goes to a tanning facility and, and the host is like, this is the worst smell I've smelled in all the years of doing this show. So, you know, this was kind of like some sort of a... Um, you know, there's, there's, there's dead animals lying around, de around dan dead animal skins lying around. It looks like some sort of a, like a haunted house horror flick, you know, for animals. And so you got all these animals there, right? And Peter, not really known for his consistency, seems to have no problem staying with this unclean tanner, which is kind of ironic considering some of the objections he's going to make later on in this story. So he's there with the tanner and all the dead animals. And in chapter 10, verse 1, we see the action moves even further north. It says, now in Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer. So we're even further up the coast now, another 30 miles north of Joppa, 
up the coast to the town of Caesarea. And you really couldn't get a more non-Jewish city than Caesarea. You know, this is named after Caesar himself, built by Herod the Great. Here's an artist's rendering of what this ancient city would have looked like. You can still see a lot of the foundations for these different buildings there today. But you can see this is just about as Greco-Roman as you can get. You got all kinds of temples you can see interspersed throughout the city with these big, tall Greek columns. You got your amphitheater where the Greek dramas would take place. There's a hippodrome for the racing of the horses. There would have been Olympic games going on here. You know, you got your naked Greek wrestlers just grappling with one another. And this, the Jews would have just gone through the city like, this is so gross. I can't believe I'm in Caesarea. It's kind of the opposite of Jerusalem. And for Jews that had a very negative view of Gentiles. Um, that would have made this city even more unclean. They, you can read ancient Jewish literature talking about what a despised city Caesarea was and should not be considered part of Israel at all, they said. Well, there was a Roman army officer there. His name was Cornelius, who was a captain or a centurion of the Italian regiment. So he's in charge of 100 soldiers stationed there. And, you know, the Jews, they hated... Gentiles, they hated the Romans. They definitely hated the Roman army. I mean, this, this is just about as bad as you can get. But this guy Cornelius, he seems like he was actually a pretty good dude. He was one of the God-fearers. Luke says he was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. And so these God-fearers, they were Gentiles that for some, somehow they'd come into contact with the synagogue, with the Jewish community. They would see the scriptures and they would be like, this is different than my pagan religion and I like it. And so they, would, they might learn the scriptures. They would try to observe some of the practices. The big barrier was they didn't want to go as far as to getting circumcised as an adult, which you can see where they're coming from. <laughs> but they were still very, very, this guy was very devout. He had led his whole family into being a God-fearing, a God-fearing household. He gave generously to the poor. He prayed regularly to God. This guy seems like a really good dude. And yet, in spite of all that, he still was an outsider. There was this glass ceiling where Gentiles could only rise so high, and it was a very low level to which they could rise to. John Stott, I like how he puts it. He says, it's difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles, including even the God-fearers, on the other. And the tragedy was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism. Yeah, God had chosen the Jews for a mission, to deliver the scriptures, to deliver the Messiah. He did say there does need to be some separation because if you guys just join in with these pagan religions, one, their religion is super messed up, and two, it means you're just gonna blend in with them, and I've got an important message and a savior I need to send through you guys. And so they had taken that choice of God where he had chosen them for a mission, and they had elevated it to racism, to prejudice, that we're better than them. And that's a, a blatant misunderstanding of the doctrine of election. He says, they became filled with racial pride. They hated, despised Gentiles and called them dogs, which was an insult back then. And developed traditions which kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile, even a God-fearer, or invite such into his home, as we'll see later in this story. On the contrary, Edersheim writes, all familiar intercourse with Gentiles was forbidden, and no pious Jew 
would, of course, have sat down at the table of a Gentile. They did not, you did not just hang out with Gentiles. You didn't have a meal together. You didn't go into each other's homes. You stayed very separate. This, then, was the entrenched prejudice, which had to be overcome before Gentiles could be admitted into the Christian community on equal terms with Jews. And before the church could become a truly multiracial, multicultural society. Yes. One of the unique features of Christianity is its ability to adapt to different cultures while still re- keeping its core of truth. And the church simply was not doing that at this point in history. It was bound up in the shackles of culture of, 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 of Judaism. And God needs to break that out because he wants the whole world to hear about his message of salvation. Well, one afternoon at about 3 o'clock, so we're up in Caesarea here, Cornelius had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. So he's praying, and God, uh, God sends an angel to talk to him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now, send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with Simon, who's a tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened, and he sent them off to Joppa right away. So they head down the coast, the 30 miles to Joppa. Well, the next day, as Cornelius' messengers are nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. Yeah, they would hang out on the roof back then. That was like their living room. Plus, you get a nice cool breeze off the ocean. Might have kind of blown some of that stench out of there, too. But Peter, he's, he's looking for an opportunity to pray. It's almost lunchtime. He heads up. It was about noon, and he was hungry, right? But... While a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. Whoa. (laughs) In the sheet were all sorts of animals and reptiles and birds. Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat them. (laughs) Hope you're hungry. (laughs) No, Lord, Peter declared. (laughs) I love that sentence. You see, they say no or Lord, okay? (laughs) Let's not put those together. They really don't belong together. Either yes, Lord, or no. Because if it's no, he's not the Lord, right? I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. Peter's like, I got that list memorized. I know what I can eat and can't eat. And there's stuff in that sheet I'm not supposed to eat. And there's, there's stuff I can't eat that's touching the stuff I shouldn't eat. And so I'm better off just not eating any of it. Yeah, these lists, they're, you know... God's like beef? He's like, yeah. Monkeys? No. (laughs) Can I eat an owl? God's like, no. (laughs) Worms? No. 
Grasshoppers? Actually, yeah, you can eat grasshoppers. <laughs> it's a little unclear, but Peter knew them all. <laughs> and he also knew he had never eaten anything unclean, which is interesting because this is probably late 30s A.D., 39 or 40, that's seven years since Jesus died, which would have made it eight or nine years since Mark chapter seven, when it says Jesus declared all foods clean. You can eat anything you want. And here's Peter, seven years later, still observing the law that Jesus rendered null and void. But the voice spoke again. And it said, don't call something unclean if God's made it clean, Peter. And that's a pretty central point to this passage that we're studying. Don't call something unclean if God has made it clean. Well, Peter doesn't get it because it said this happened three times. (laughs) Kill and eat. No, Lord. Don't call something unclean if God has made it clean. Peter, kill and eat. Have some pork chops. Would you like some lion? (laughs) Perhaps some buzzard? No, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. And so once again, Peter denies Jesus three times. What? He did. And then suddenly, the sheet is pulled up to heaven. Well, that's a confusing time of prayer right there. I guess he was hungry. Maybe he's like, was this just like I was so hungry that I thought about eating something unclean? Peter was very perplexed. What could that vision mean? I don't think God was very clear. (laughs) Just then, the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. And then standing outside the gate, they asked, is there a man named Simon Peter staying here? Meanwhile, Peter's puzzling over the vision still. The Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. Get up and go downstairs. Go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, I sent them. (laughs) Okay. So Peter went downstairs and he said, I'm the man you're looking for. Why have you come? They said, we were sent by Cornelius. A Roman officer, but he's a devout and God-fearing man, well-respected by all the Jews. A a holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he could hear your message. And so, Peter invited the men to stay for the night. He invites three Gentiles into his home to crash at his, I guess, at Simon's place that night. I guess he figured they got all the dead animals in there. What's three Gentiles going to add to the unclean level? 
The boys back in Jerusalem will probably never find out about this anyway, right? <laughs> the next day, he went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa, up the coast to Caesarea. And so they arrived in Caesarea the following day, and you can imagine Peter walking through that town. It was just Greek stuff everywhere, and he's feeling a little uncomfortable. He's not used to running in this circle here. But it says Cornelius was waiting for them, and he'd call together his relatives and his close friends. There was probably 30, 40 people assembled here waiting for Peter to show up. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet, boom, and worshiped him. So you can tell that he's, he's still confused spiritually. Peter pulled on and said, stand up, man. I'm a human being. I'm just like you. And we don't worship people here. So they talked together, and they went inside where many others were assembled. And Peter told them, you know... It's against our laws, or really traditions is a better word there. It's against our traditions for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this, or even to associate with you. Yeah, this was not the laws in the Old Testament that said they couldn't interact with a Gentile or enter a Gentile's home. These were additional rules that the rabbis added to the law because they're like, well, we want to make extra sure that people don't sin, and so let's add some extra rules to the law. And they called it building a fence around the law. Like, if that's what's wrong, we need, to, we need to keep people back here behind this barrier so they don't even have to risk getting close enough to touch the thing they shouldn't touch, to do the thing they shouldn't do. And so they added layer upon layer of legislation to the laws to specify what exactly did it mean to keep the Sabbath and how can we make sure that people do not work on the Sabbath and what does work really even mean? But God never told him not to associate with Gentiles. In fact, he said Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations. You run into problems when people start adding to the word of God. But Peter says, but you know, God's shown me. I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. He was getting it. That vision related to food but the point, don't call anything unclean if I've called it clean. He realized there's much broader application here. And I've been wrong about a lot of things, he says. He says, I've been wrong about some things. So this is new to me, Peter says. I've never been in the home of a Gentile before. But God's at work in my life. And he's teaching me how to love people the way he does. So he says, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now, tell me why you sent for me. Cornelius replied, well, four days ago, I was praying in my house about this same time, three o'clock in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. He told me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now, send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying in the home of Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. Luke's repeating this for us because it's important. We're going to see this story repeated several more times just in the next couple chapters in the book of Acts for emphasis. He's showing that God is at work here, and this is fully and completely from God, this movement to the Gentiles. 
So I sent for you at once, and it was good of you to come. Now we're all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given to you. Talk about a receptive audience. How cool that Cornelius didn't just keep this for himself, but he went out and got as many people as he could to hear this too. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. Yeah, isn't that the point here? God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right, which at first almost sounds like, as long as you're a good person, you'll go to heaven. But that's not what he's saying. It can't be what he's saying. Otherwise, why did Cornelius need to go find the synagogue? And why did Cornelius need to go down and get Peter? No, he was responding to the light that God had shown him, and God gave him more light and more light. And what he's saying is, look, the emphasis here is on every nation. God is gathering a people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, it says in the scriptures. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, but not just them. There's peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism. So he's going into historical rendering of the life of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the gospel, the good news. He says, you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, and with power. And then Jesus, he went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Yeah, this is a spiritual battle they've entered into. The devil on the one side, Jesus on the other. And we apostles were witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. That's our job, to be his witnesses. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him to life on the third day. And then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us, whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We're those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. This was no ghost. He was eating with us. He ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. Yes, to preach everywhere, he says. And Peter's realizing how far short I think they've fallen from that charge to go and tell everybody everywhere. Jesus is the one all the prophets testified about. Yeah, the Old Testament scriptures laying down prediction after prediction, pre-authenticating the Messiah. If you've never studied these prophecies, we got a free book for you, a nice short free book called Discovering God Out There that goes into some detail on quite a few of them saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Yes, that's exactly the message of the prophets. He was pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah says. And even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. Yes, he gets up to the part where he says, believing in Jesus, and that moment it looks like they put their trust in him. And the Holy Spirit, boom, fell on that room in a very obvious way. The Jewish believers, he brought six guys with him, okay, as witnesses for this. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. That's exactly what happened in Acts chapter two. 
where God sent the Holy Spirit onto the Jews there, and they spoke in tongues. They spoke in other languages, and now this is what's happening to the Gentiles. And it's not like you have to speak in tongues to show you're a real believer or anything like that. No, it, the point here is God is saying, just like you got this, and I'm very miraculously and obviously saying, yes, I want this. Now, he says, the Gentiles get the same thing as you. They're not second-class citizens anymore. They're full, equal partners in this message of life. And then Peter asked, can anyone object to their being baptized now that they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did? He's like, any objections? And so he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. And there you've got the story of what could be called the Gentile Pentecost. The breakthrough of the final racial barrier. We saw the gospel go to the Samaritans, and we saw Peter and John present for that. To authenticate this movement to bring the Samaritans and the Jews onto equal footing. And now we see God taking Peter a little further away, a little further away, getting him alone, a little further away. And then he's up at Caesarea for the breakthrough to the Gentiles and the bringing the Gentiles into the church on fully equal footing through no one other than Peter himself, the guy, the leader of the apostolic band, the guy who Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom. And now Peter realizes he's going to have to go back to Jerusalem and explain himself. And so that we'll have to get to next week. But what we've got is just one question I want to think about here as we wrap up. You see, there are all these barriers that they had up to keep first the Samaritans and then the Greeks from coming to Christ. And I'm not sure how conscious they were of these barriers. They were probably a blind spot to many. You know, Peter's like, I'll die for you, Jesus. And the Jesus is like, will you just go tell a Greek about me? And he's like, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> and so we need to think about this question. Do we, might, might we have some blind spots? Might we have some barriers we're putting up that God never intended to be there? Where God says, I want you to go do this, and we're like, oh, no, Lord, I couldn't do that. I would never do anything like that. I'm a Christian. Here's a question. Can you show others the love of God no matter who they are, regardless of race? You know, can you show the love of God to someone who's black, Hispanic? Can you show the love of God to a white person? Or are we so bound up within our own race, within our own prejudices, that we feel pretty uncomfortable doing something like that? What about regardless of your politics? Could you show the love of God to a Donald Trump supporter? What about someone who supports Hillary? Could you show the love of God to them? Regardless of their political persuasion? Communist, libertarian, socialist... What do you think? Or is that just such a turn off that they are unlovable and somebody else is going to have to do that? 
If so, you got a problem. I'll die for you, Lord. Yeah, will you, will you love that person? I, I don't know about that. Regardless of their class, what about a poor person? What about a rich person? Someone who just wasn't raised the same way as you. Classism may be worse than racism today. What about an ugly person or a beautiful person? An annoying person? Can you love them? Will you love them? Or are you pre-selecting who you will and won't love? What about somebody who's sinful? I've heard this sometimes. Somebody's like, well, I was thinking about inviting that person out to home church, but I just don't think they're very godly. I don't think that, I think they're pretty sinful. And I'm like, what? (laughs) What are you talking about? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And we're withdrawing from people because they're icky. (laughs) Unfortunately, this is what Christians are known for. The things on this list. We've got these, these, these resentments, these prejudices, and unfortunately, a lot of times they go back to our very earliest days. These are kind of, a lot of them were raised in these, these ways of viewing people. And Jesus Christ is the only possible deep cure for racism and prejudice and classism and all the distinctions that we set up. God is working on a truly multicultural, multi-ethnic community. And that's one of the things I love most about our church. Is you see this in our ministry. More than you see it in a lot of churches. Here's another question. Are we adding additional rules to the gospel? Like the religious teachers in the day of, uh, days of Jesus. Christians are guilty of this too. You think about the, the rules they add, drinking alcohol. There's a lot of Christians that make it sound like in order to become a Christian, you need to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the, as the Son of God who died for your sins, put your faith in Him, forsake other attempts at your own righteousness, and you got to quit drinking. There's a lot of Christians that they don't say that. They sure do seem like it. The way they live makes it sound like that. Well, we couldn't go into a bar. Well, you know, God says you shouldn't get drunk, which you shouldn't get drunk, because that's bad too. But, you know, maybe we should just not go into bars at all, because, um, well, people might be tempted to drink, and they might drink, and they might get drunk, and that would be a sin. And so maybe we should just stay out of bars. You know, that probably should apply to sports bars, and, you know, it's hard to tell where to draw the line. You know, meanwhile, Jesus is standing behind the Christians saying, I never said that. That you have to stop drinking to come to Christ? Christians are like, oh, I I would never drink. And Jesus is like, well, I did. (laughs) Have you read about my first miracle? Where I made 757 bottles of wine? That's actually the quantity. Good wine, too. And so we add something to the gospel that never should have been there. And what does it do? It makes it more legalistic and less evangelistic. Non-Christian music and books and movies. Christians are not supposed to read these because they might be stumbled, and those lyrics are not very edifying. And <laughs> which is true sometimes, but... 
But we can never, li- you know, what? So you listen to a song and you're automatically going to do the things the song says? Okay, people, people all the time listen to songs and don't do the thing the song tells them to do, okay? And so Christians, they come up with their whole subculture of Christian music and Christian books and Christian movies. And we've got lists that we're not allowed to read and lists that need to be burned. And this is something that Christians have done throughout the centuries. I remember talking to a guy once. He's like, man, I, I became a Christian a couple of years ago. And, you know, God really worked some changes in my life. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a, a singer named Dave Matthews but he has some of the most beautiful music you've ever heard. But I, I had to burn my whole collection when I came to Christ. I was like, thinking, man, there's, there's better reasons to burn your Dave Matthews collection, okay? <laughs> but people are like, oh, that'd be great. I'll become a Christian. I'll just get rid of all my music, books, movies, and and." Never drink again? No, thank you. I'm not interested in your Jesus. Dancing, the latest fashion, tattoos, piercings. These are things that you're just not allowed to partake in if you're a Christian. And Jesus is like, I never said that. Okay? Politics are so linked to Christianity with one particular political party that one girl I knew, she became a Christian. She sat down to talk to her dad about it. And he's like, look, I don't want to hear about it. I can't become a Republican. And she was like, that's not what I'm here to talk about. <laughs> the sad thing is most non-Christians aren't even hostile to biblical Christianity because they've never even seen it. What they've seen is all the rules that Christians have added to it, and they never get around to telling people the gospel. And frankly, they never get close enough to the non-Christian for them to even see their life. And so we find ourselves guilty of some of the things we're seeing right here in this passage. Holding the rules God never said we should hold to, rules that make it hard for outsiders to become Christians, that make it hard for us to even have a relationship with them. And we need to make sure we're not doing that. Look, here's the point. God loves all people and he wants them to have a shot. He wants them to hear. That's what we see here in this story. We see him working both in the life of Cornelius and in the life of Peter. He's working in both directions because he wants Cornelius to know Jesus Christ. He's responded so far to what he's seen, he wants him to have even more. And Peter, he wants him to learn how to love people like Jesus did. You see, this is really a story of two conversions. There's the conversion of Cornelius and his friends, his close friends, his relatives, meeting Jesus Christ. And it's the conversion of Peter starting to realize, if God calls something clean, who am I to call it unclean? God shows no favoritism. You know, God's at work in your life too. And maybe you're like Cornelius. You're not a Christian, but you're open. Maybe you're not even that open yet, but you're here tonight, so that's a good start. But whatever the reason God is moving into your life, he's trying to reach you with his love. He's going to great lengths. He sent other people into your life because he wants you to receive that forgiveness through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter 
ethnicity, nationality, politics, what you look like, how you were raised, because he's the Lord of all. And he's gathering a people of every people and tongue and tribe and nation to be in his community. But maybe you're a Christian. If you are, you should know God's at work in your life too to make you someone who loves others better, who moves more boldly into people's lives with the love of Christ, the message of the good news. That's not put off, that doesn't have these hang-ups, these blind spots even. But he wants to teach you to be a man or a woman who can serve as his witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So there we got Acts chapter 10. Yes, Lord, we're definitely prone to wander. And um, we need the light of your revelation. We need your light shining into our lives, Lord, um, to teach us how to love like you do. I pray that we would be your witnesses, Lord, and not, not doing it our way, but we do it your way, Lord loving the people that you put in, put in our lives and even seeking people out. I pray, Lord, for the Cornelius types here in this room who, they're close, um, but they, they, need to, they need to believe in Jesus. And I pray they do that. I pray, too, for, for those of us who are a little bit like Peter. We're kind of hung up on the wrong things. And I pray that um, we, would, we would cooperate with you as you teach us how to become those that reach out with your love to other people. And I pray our church would be more and more a multicultural, accepting place, Lord, that we don't compromise on truth or even on morality or ethics, but what we do, what we do hold forth is a message that doesn't add extra barriers and loves people no matter who they are and where they're coming from. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.